aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. Hey, everybody. Merry Christmas. It's that time of year again where the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show hooks up with our best friend, Joanna Wilson, and we talk Christmas television. I'm super excited to be here. We're having some technical difficulties, but it looks like we're going to power through them, and Dan's going to be the big hero of the night. So oh boy. I don't know what that means. At some point, we'll buy him a hero sandwich or something. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> it is Christmas good. time. It is. What's more festive than a hero sandwich? Mm-hmm. Good. Mm-hmm. Think, think, think. If you put tomatoes and lettuce on it, then it's like red and green. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, hmm. Super fucking festive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, we had our holiday party today at my job, and our idea of festive in Austin, Texas is lots and lots of enchiladas and burritos. Oh, well. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was real. I really overate. I haven't eaten in like seven hours and i'd probably be okay till tomorrow night so (laughs) (laughs) that's how good it was but anyway let me introduce everybody i'm really excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about a little bit of a undiscovered gem that was mentioned on our halloween episode and was a tv movie that i discovered myself last year and we decided because it's set around christmas we're going to do it um and it's horror related and it's a movie i think very few people have actually seen or heard of so i'm just i'm that's my favorite thing is unearthing these gems so um let's start by saying hello to joanna hey what's up hi how are you i'm good except for the technical difficulties and the fact that i overate i'm great (laughs) i'm only slightly stressed out it's great to talk to you again i know it always feels like forever i don't know why we just don't skype gossip yeah yeah It would be fun. Um, So, Joanna, I have been really busy this year, so I haven't been able to keep up with what you're doing. So why don't you tell everybody what you're up to this year? Well, I'm just um, talking about my book that just came out last year. It was brand new called Triple Dog Dare. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, I watched a 24 hour marathon. I watched the movie 12 times back to back all in a row, recreating that um, cable uh, marathon that's every year. In fact, this is the 20th year that um, oh. TBS or TNT has been airing the 24-hour marathon of A Christmas Story. And anyway, I, I staged that 24-hour marathon and documented my experiences and added my unique perspective as a Christmas entertainment writer to the entire experience. And uh, it was a fun project. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. I saw you were you put up some pictures of yourself. So you had people come by. Now, so when you normally do this marathon, is that like a pretty typical thing? Just friends drop in and sit and watch it with you? Well, it's it's it begins at eight o'clock on Christmas Eve and it goes, you know, for 24 hours. It goes through Christmas Day and it's usually on in the background. We don't pay too much attention to it. Every once in a while, you know, one of the jokes will stand out and we'll laugh or we'll talk about you know, our favorite moments as, as it cycles through again. But we just, it's generally on in the background as we go about our holiday, celebrating, eating, talking, catching up with friends and family. So yeah, I when I restaged it, I had some friends drop over because that's how we usually spend our Christmas, you know, having friends drop by. And uh, I had them join the experience and write them into the book too. So it uh, adds some authenticity to the whole thing. So fun. You know, I have um, my annual, I think we talked about this last year, maybe my annual thing is to watch Silent Night, Deadly Night. I watch it every Christmas Eve. And for a while, we were going to try to watch all I think there's five of them, maybe. And I've only seen the first one. Um, the one that Haskell Wexler directed. Was it Haskell Wexler or Monty Hellman? Which one was it that directed? Mon- Mon- 
Monty Hellman did three um, with Rob Why do Cole. I always why do I always mix those up? Um those two filmmakers and I've seen part of two and I've been really, I've seen all of two, but I only remember parts of it, but I've been really obsessed with garbage day. And somebody <laughs> made a garbage day gif or gif or however you say that word. And, um, I put it on my Twitter the other day and I think like three people reacted, but I thought it was hilarious <laughs> because I felt like garbage day that day. So, um, but, but that's my annual thing. I think this year we're going to watch black Christmas again. We saw it at the Alamo last year, uh, which was really exciting. It's like my third time seeing it on the big screen. Um, one of the times I saw it, I got, to see with Bob Clark and John Saxon there. We didn't get to meet Bob Clark, unfortunately, but we did get to meet John Saxon. And I saw it one year with Olivia Hussey in the audience, which yeah. was really cool. Yeah. Last time I just saw it as, you know, the film, there were no celebrities there, but it, it's such a great movie. It's really timeless. And I feel like this year we're going to um, go down that path again. Um, Dan, what are your uh, TV watching habits for the holidays? Uh, usually my wife and I, most weeknights will watch like two or three TV specials of some sort or like yesterday we did the SCTV staff Christmas party which is one of our favorites and then the night before we did a Petticoat Junction Christmas episode oh the uh, Cannonball Christmas yes which is a lot so of fun so good yeah and then we did the Father Ted's Christmas and oh. um one of, oh we did Batman Brave and the Bold Christmas where he teams up with Red Tornado so those, oh, are, those are all fantastic yeah so so that's what we do I try to uh, pick a rather as eclectic as I can do mix for when when uh, when my wife gets home from work I I sort of have planned I, I've got the Lawrence Welk Christmas episode standing by uh, not Lawrence Welk I'm sorry uh, Liberace I'm sure there's a oh fun Welk oh too. yeah I've seen that um fun. Nate Nate what is your uh I feel like we might be going along the same lines here but what is your holiday viewing habits I always watch uh, Black Christmas, Yay. and I always watch the Joan Collins Tales from the Crypt segment mm. from the film, yeah. and I watch the remake Tales from the Crypt, uh, the same one with Larry Drake, yeah, where he plays the hey. Santa. And uh, lastly, I'll always watch the Tales from the Dark Side episode with the Grither. Oh, yes. fantastic. Yes. We, I watch it every year. So I was going to promote this at the end, but I'll just mention it now. So I contributed a chapter to a book called Yuletide Terror, which is actually coming out very close to Christmas. I think they're just going out this week, maybe, to the people who uh, contributed to the Indiegogo campaign that they had. And so my subject was anthology TV that had um, holiday like horror episodes. And The Grither was one of the ones I did. I don't want to say too much because I'd like people to read the chapter. There's a couple of odd, odd ones in there. I didn't go for like the obvious horror Christmas, which I guess would be the Tales from the Crypt, which is in there. But um, And Monsters had a couple of really good Christmas episodes that I wasn't that familiar with until I started writing this chapter. But The Grither is really good. It's so dark and evil and haunting. And it's really interesting because, um, you know, in England, there was a whole like tradition of telling ghost stories for Christmas, which is where the M.R. James, you know, adaptations came from in the 70s. And in The Grither, it's telling ghost stories at Christmas, but then they it manifests itself in a different way. Do you know what I mean? And so it was it's a really interesting take on that whole um, sort of oral history that we have with the holidays, only it goes places that a lot of TV doesn't take, would no, not normally take it. And I think that might be partially because it was syndicated. And I was reading um, John Kenneth Muir 
has written about these anthologies, Monsters and Tales from the Dark Side. And one of the things he was talking about was that the fact that they were syndicated, they could be a little more subversive and a little more grotesque. And I really think that they did something so completely unique to what you were seeing on like network television. So I was really excited to watch uh, Seasons of Belief, which is the Grither episode. Um, it's really fantastic. But somebody tell me why E.G. Marshall's wife is like 25. Wow. Yeah, she's much younger than him, and it's never re- yes, it's never referenced it's, in the episode. No, it, not at all, and, and it's funny because there's a character that shows up later in the episode who is supposed to be the uncle. And to me, the wife and, and the uncle there, like, they are close to the same age, so I almost thought they should have probably been the couple, and E.G. Marshall played the uncle, perhaps. Yeah, but he maybe. does a good job in it. He does a great oh, job in it. They're but. great. Margaret Clank is the actress, and I think they're both wonderful in it. Um, E.G. Marshall, and I wrote about it in the chapter, um, and I can't remember the name of the show, but he actually had his, uh, like a radio show in the 70s or 80s, like late into the career, his career, where he actually told stories. So he was perfect for um, the part because he had been telling stories like right up until they shot, you know what I mean? That episode. Mm -hmm. So, and he, and he spins a really good tale there. Um, Yeah. That's a really good one. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I'm just now starting to get into anthology TV because of all that research I had to do. I saw a really interesting Joanna, I'm sure knows it. I think it was a outer limits from the eighties or nineties called the conversion with Frank Whaley. Do you remember that Joanna? Yes, that is that is the new Outer Limits. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it was amazing. It didn't fit into what I was writing, but um, it's this really weird story about a guy who I think is going to like kill his coworkers, and he ends up um, it all kind of goes haywire, and he gets shot, and he ends up at this restaurant where I think is it John Savage, um, yes. comes to him, and he's like this alien. And they sort of, it's sort of like a redemption story. And it, it's really beautiful. I loved it. But the thing is, it, it was too positive for what I was looking for. I was looking for the really dark stuff. But Joanna, what did you think of that episode? It is, um, does have a positive spin on it. And uh, that one's hard to find often. Um, I'm a big fan of that one, too. Awesome. Yeah, so it was, I wish I could have fit it in. And when I was originally going through stuff, I had this list of episodes. It was like everything I watched, I wanted to like fit in, but it just couldn't work. And so I had to pick like three or four themes and then sort of write about those themes. Otherwise it would have just been like a capsule review and there are capsule reviews in the book. So it was not, you know, it would just be retread. But um, anyway, so if anybody's really interested in Christmas horror, uh, pick up Yuletide Terror Joanna's in there as well, right? Yeah, I wrote uh, about 22 capsule uh, reviews. I wrote about the uh, HBO uh, Tales of the Crypt Christmas episode. Oh, great. Yeah, among a whole bunch of other um, weird ones. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'm so excited that we're in a book together, Joanna. That means a lot to me. So. <laughs> Yay! Yay! So everybody check that out. But um, And I forgot to say hi to Nate, and Nate's already talked. But hey, Nate. Hey. Are you wearing uh, bat pajamas? I always wear my bat pajamas in the evenings. Oh, so good. All right, good. I can't go on unless they're on your body somewhere, Nate, just so you know. Oh, okay, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure to wear them every time we're doing the show. They're like the good luck uh, pajamas that I need in my life. Um, Okay, so why don't we go ahead? We have a lot to do tonight, and I want to make sure everybody can make it through the whole episode. So we're going to just go ahead and get started with our feature film, which is called A Little Game. I'm going to go ahead and do the breakdown on this one. Um, It's just going to be really quick. And then we'll dive into this film, which I think is, was this the first time viewing for everybody else? Yeah. Yes. 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 Oh, so good. All right. I'm really excited to hear what everybody thinks. All right. So let me just start by giving you the really short um, 
Alvin Merrill's synopsis from his book, Movies Made for Television. In this thriller, a hostile youngster who will stop at nothing to break up his mother's marriage is, is suspected of homicide, and his stepfather fears that he may be the boy's next victim. Based on the 1968 novel by Fielden Farrington. Um, the cast is very short, so I'm just going to briefly go into it. Uh, Robert is played by Mark Gruner, and Robert is the little boy. Um, you may be surprised or not surprised to know that Mark Gruner would go on to play uh, Chief Brody's oldest son in Jaws 2. That's what I know him best from. Um, Stu is his buddy, played by Christopher Shea. Stu was the voice of Linus in um, the old Charlie Browns, which I thought was really interesting. And he actually died kind of young, which made me sad because I have a big soft spot for this character. Um, Paul Hamilton was played by the great Ed Nelson, who I will probably talk about um, until you guys tell me to shut up. Um, he's one of my favorite actors. Uh, Elaine Hamilton is played by Diane Baker, who probably needs no introduction. And you know what? Without pulling up her IMDb or anything, the first thing I always think of for Diane Baker is Silence of the Lambs. She is the, I don't know if it was a governor or whatever, but she's Senator. like the... Uh, Senator is the mother of the girl that gets kidnapped. Um, I'm a huge Diane Baker fan. Dunlap is played by the great Howard Duff, who um, I guess is most famous to me for being married to Ida Lupino and for also being incredible and showing up on things like The Golden Girls and Charlie's Angels, a really wonderful gruff actor. And Laura is Katie Giardo, who is an actress I'm not super familiar with. Um, and she plays the maid, and she's not really in the synopsis, but um, that's basically the entire cast. So... A little game opens at the beginning of the Christmas holiday season as Robert comes home from military school. He's got his best friend Stu in tow and doesn't seem pleased that his mother, Elaine, is married to the thoughtful Paul, who Robert will only address as Mr. Hamilton. Robert has an unhealthy fixation on guns and his father, who died in a car accident when he was much younger. Although, I'm unclear how young he was because I feel like he knew his father, but there was a reference to his only, him only being a month old at some point and something I, I, happened. I th I I saw I, I watched it this morning and I, I saw that that same thing. It's when um uh yeah when Ed Nelson is given his speech at the end. I think he just misemphasizes a line, is what it oh, is. Oh okay. I think okay. he he's saying something like, and is this spoiling too early already? Should I wait? No no no. No, go ahead. He, he he says to um the kid Robert um uh you know he your dad beat you when you were just like one month old or something oh, got like it. that and then then his next line is then they went home that night in the car but the way he emphasizes it it almost makes it sound like he beat him and then that night they went home in the car but Thank actually, you. I, I I think he separate he 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 just misemphasized the sentence um and Nelson makes no mistakes let's I, get that. No, you, every, every human has to make one. <laughs> That's his one. Yes. That's the only one he's ever made as far as I can <laughs> tell. Um, Robert idealizes his father the same way Stu, who comes from a broken home, idealizes the family unit. Stu and Paul instantly bond, but Robert refuses to warm to Paul and suggests that they are and suggests that he and Paul are both married to Elaine and fighting for her attention and devotion, which is this really interesting thing to have a kid actually call that out in what is essentially like a really weird love triangle between a son his mother and her new husband but it's almost like a romantic triangle in some weird way um which is really brilliant the way this film is done um after paul overhears a conversation between robert and Stu, he contacts a private investigator named dunlap to look into a boy named hastings who may have died at robert's military academy swear this is ridiculous robert i'm not gonna tell anybody swear Holy stack of Bibles, ten miles high. And a holy stack of Bibles, ten miles high. I will carve an L on my forehead for liar. I will carve an L on my forehead for liar. If I ever tell anybody. If I ever tell anybody. That 
We killed him. That you killed him. We. You. No! We! We! That's better. On Christmas Day, Robert buys his mother two tickets to a play, purposely leaving Paul out of it. He also buys her the same flowers her dead husband used to buy her, which sends Elaine into a fit of tears. After the play, Paul confronts Elaine, telling her that a boy died at the academy and he's sure Robert is behind it. This creates tension because Diane carries guilt over being the person driving the car that killed her husband. She then sides with her son and asks Paul to move out. Robert and Stu share a love of stories and true crime and have created a game where they create, where they um, use create twice, sorry, where they create a story of how they'd kill off anyone who they dislike. Stu tells Paul that Hastings did not really die and that he just went to one of the, and he was just one of the many who have fallen prey to this harmless game. As the film progresses, Robert and Stu are seen as complete opposites, with Robert coming off more like an adult in a child's body, although he continues to do childish things like keeping a diary where he basically confesses to murder and then hiding it under his bed, which is like the most obvious hiding place for a diary. And Stu appearing as a fairly normal 13-year-old, although the film, as the film progresses, it becomes clear that Stu is broken with reality and does so when things become all too serious. And everything comes to a head when Dunlap produces evidence that proves Hastings was killed in the very same way that he was in the game. Stu confesses, but Robert has to take things as far as he can before he realizes how much like his father he truly is. And that's my very brief synopsis of what is essentially a pretty straightforward film that goes from point A to point B very beautifully. Um, So I'll just briefly talk about my experience with the film. So last year when I went to Monster Mania in Australia, um, we were doing a panel about TV movies, and one of the topics that we wanted to talk about on the panel was evil kid TV movies. And Bad Ronald, of course, is the obvious one and the one I think I picked to discuss. But um, I was just sort of watching um, some movies to sort of get re-familiarize myself with things. And a little game had always been on my radar, but it has this really horrible TV guide ad of Robert's face, you know, the actor Mark Gruner, making this kind of dumbfounded look. And then it's got, I can't even remember what the tagline is, but it's got like a tagline. And then it's just really plain and not very eye-catching, I guess. And I so it sort of just was on the back of my mind. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to watch this. And um, I was on my elliptical, as I normally am when I watch these things. And uh, and I was just blown away by how good it was. It's really smart. Like I said, it's very simple. It's it's really interested in point A and point B and just getting there. It's got, but at the same time, it's got these really beautifully drawn characters, um, in particular Stu, who I think by the end of the film, I think he comes off as one way through most of it. And then at the end, you're like, whoa, what just happened? And he's a really, com- he turns out to be really complex, much like uh, Robert is, but in a, a much different way. And so it was really a joy for me to discover this film. And it was sort of on my mind when um, I was approached to submit a chapter to Yuletide Terror because Kayla asked if I wanted to do some capsule reviews and she had a spreadsheet and I filled out some, you know, my name on some of the titles. And so I contacted her and I said, you know, a little game is set around Christmas. Do you mind if I write about it? And um, she was like, no, actually, that would be really great. And so I revisited it again. And I just the more I watch it, the more I'm really intrigued by it. Um, And, you know, it didn't do very well in the ratings and we'll get to that soon. But it's it really seems lost. And I think that's unfortunate, especially since evil kid movies are pretty popular. Um, And in fact, they're their own subgenre. Right. So uh, I don't know why this film of all films should have had suffered this fate. But I'm really happy to be bringing it to you guys. And I'm really curious to hear what everybody thought of it. So let me start with our guest, Joanna. (laughs) I I find it a very solid film, too. I loved it. I, I thought it was great. On the other hand, I would never call this a Christmas movie. Um, it To me, it's uh, my reading of it, uh, it seems to be set over a winter break during their mm-hmm. uh, military uh, school um, 
school year. And there is a day during that winter break where it is Christmas Day, but it, it you could have swapped that out for any other sort of holiday, any other, any, any other sort of calendar day, and it would have been just as meaningful. It, it doesn't really connect to Christmas in any way. Um, and it doesn't really play on any kind of expectation or any kind of themes or any kind of motifs or anything that have anything to do with Christmas like so many other Christmas entertainments do. But still, it's a solid um, horror, psychological thriller. And um, this main character, Robert, as you described uh, very well, is very interesting and very complex. And uh, I really enjoyed myself when I watched it today. Oh, great. So um, just to go back to you talking about the motifs and stuff, I'm really glad you're here to, to discuss that because I know that there are times, and you've told me other people have come to you and they're like, is this a Christmas movie? And, and you know, you're very specific about, uh, like you're malleable. Like I know you look at a lot of stuff and you're like, okay, this has this theme. Like we talked about Home for the Holidays. And to me, Home for the Holidays it, in a lot of ways, doesn't feel like a Christmas movie, but you brought up things I never thought about, and that was like the gift giving and the family gathering. And there are very specific things in there that stand out to me as specifically Christmas in a way that I think this film has that, but it you're right, it could be swapped out for a birthday or anything, you know what I mean? And so right. I was curious how you would fit it in in your canon, if you will, um, of titles, because like, I think I asked you about like Invasion USA. I mean, you must get asked these questions all the time, you know, like, yeah. would you consider this a Christmas movie? And, um, and so for this podcast, we're going to go ahead and call it a Christmas movie. <laughs> but, but I think, I, I think you, you're right. It, it's really sort of an afterthought to it. And, um, did you know, you saw, um, it's, I can't remember what the rename of it is. And I actually wrote about it too, for Yuletide Terror. Um, you better watch out. Is that it? The new film that came out that was called Perfect Neighborhood with Patrick Warburton. Have you seen that? And Virginia Madsen? No, it's so good. Yeah, it is good. But, but Joanna, have you seen it? I haven't. Um, I'm just curious if you would consider that a Christmas movie too, because it's set at Christmas, but it really has nothing to do with Christmas, except I think, if it does, I mean, you would find the connections more than I would because you can catch nuances way better than I can for Christmas stuff. So I was just kind of curious if you'd seen that because I kind of think of those this film and that film as like almost companions to each other. So I'd be curious. I usually um, I have three um, criteria that I use to, you know, categorize something as, uh, you know, an entertainment as, as Christmas or not. And one is, you know, how essential is Christmas, uh, the celebration mm -hmm. as well as the calendar day, you know, a part of the storyline. Another thing is, is um, does it follow any of the, you know, expectations that we have for other Christmas entertainments? Does it have any motifs? Does it have any themes? Does it have any, um, you know, essential elements? And then the, the third one is, how do people watch this? Do I, am I aware of a fan base for this uh, show or this movie where people actually turn to this movie or, or episode or special again and again, year after year in order to um, uh, spark that holiday spirit in them. So movies like Die Hard, um, yes. people, people want to argue whether Die Hard is Christmas or not, but the fact that there is so many people that do want to watch Die Hard year after year because it's Christmas and they want to watch it at Christmas tells me that yes, it's a Christmas movie, whether other fans are against that or not, you know? Yeah, that's, yeah, Die Hard, oh, it's an endless debate. I mean, I guess I consider it a Christmas movie, but only because it was sort of introduced, like, I don't know, 20 years after it was made as a Christmas film, and it just kind of seemed to fit. 
for me, but that's just like an intuitive thing. Uh, you know, like obviously I don't have criteria set up for things. Yeah, these, these things are fluid, you know, yes. these things are very fluid and, and, um, and that's a part of the, you know, the complexness of Christmas entertainment. Sure. Well, what's really interesting is something you brought up with do people return to this over and over again? And, you know, it was actually made to capitalize on Halloween. It aired the day before Halloween in 1971. So um, that's really interesting. But uh, so it's actually more it's meant more to be like a traditional. It's not really like a slasher film or anything, but it's meant to be a traditional sort of horror story over a Christmas tale. Do you know what I mean? But I was I classified it as such because it's my show. (laughs) <laughs> that's the only excuse I have. It's my show. But um, but hopefully more people will check it out. Maybe it will become a Christmas tradition. Who knows? Um, Dan, this is your first, first viewing, right? And what do you think? Yes. Um, well, well, first off, I I found the way the movie dealt with Christmas sort of weird in that um, uh, it, it felt to me almost like, I was trying to think of a comparison, almost like the the person who wrote it didn't know what Christmas was. And they went to a friend of theirs who once worked at the in the Christmas department at Macy's <laughs> and said, what's Christmas like? And they said, oh, you put up a tree and you put some gifts, uh, presents under it. What are those? Oh, you well, we would just wrap up boxes. Oh, was there anything in them? No, but you could put, tie, <laughs> t- you could put things like ties in them and watches. Okay, we'll do that. And what else do people do at Christmas? Um, well, they, they open the gifts and then they just do whatever it is they normally do. Really? Oh, okay. And what about Christmas Eve? It's not called Christmas Eve. It's called the day before Christmas. That's a common fallacy. Oh, I didn't know that. And what? And oh, and get someone to use the phrase, um, "I want to." I'm playing Santa. What does that mean? I have no idea. Because when I watch the movie, there there are two moments with the wife where um, uh, where Paul says. It's December 23rd, and he says, I have to go into town tomorrow. And she says, but Paul, that's the day before Christmas, commonly known as Christmas Eve. I've never heard anyone who celebrates Christmas call December 24th the day before Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. <laughs> and then and then um, Ed, I'm going to just call him Ed the whole time, unfortunately. Ed sleeps on the couch um, Christmas Eve because they have an argument. She wakes him up, and... Um, he's right by the Christmas tree. She she gives him a kiss. He says, "I'm gonna go make you coffee. Do you want some coffee?" And she says, "Well, let me let me. I want to keep playing Santa." And he says, "Okay." And so when he gets up, I thought the kids would be there and she'd be handing out gifts, but there's no one there. And she just picks up two gifts and shakes them. I thought that's not what playing Santa is. That's how I play Santa. I just pick up my gifts and shake them and screw everybody else in the room or in the house. Yeah. Well, you know, they're an interesting family because they're very well off. Yes. And, and like, there's definitely like a quality, like there's a class system there with uh, the maid and with um, Dunlap, who was played by Howard Duff, the detective, that is very clear. It's more overt. I said that wrong. It's more overt uh-huh. when Ed Nelson goes to visit Dunlap for the first time. And, and Dunlap basically calls him out on it. He's like, you're uncomfortable here because we don't have oriental rugs. And it's not like this. And it's just a seedy little place where I do this. And, and you can feel that. But the maid also, like, she says to Robert at the beginning, she said, you used to be my baby. And then he throws something at her. And you can definitely feel this like tension of like the sort of the maid is, is compelled to feel like she's part of the family, but is not really part of the family. Not just because Robert's a jerk, but because that's how a lot of rich people live where, um, 
they're only family to to an extent. Like when I need you to take care of my baby when he's screaming. Do you know what I mean? But but you cease to exist afterwards. And so I feel like in a way, like the mother is attuned to this sort of class system and this sort of like also she did really poorly with her first husband. And and there's like an emptiness in there. And so I I think too like even though I didn't pick out on those things, I, I would say like that I, in a way I think that works for her character to sort of not fully understand everything because she has never fully understood everything in her entire life. Yeah. I mean, let's yeah. face it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's kind of a sad character, but at the same time, I mean, she really like, it's her kid, I get it, but she really puts the blinders on when it comes to Robert. And some of it comes from guilt and some of it just comes from the fact that you don't want your kid to be a murderer. Yeah. But there's also, I feel like there's a definite class system there where like the governess, you know, like, you know, that famous, um, it's not famous, but you know, there's that joke in Golden Girls where Blanche talks about like how, well, she cared for her babies and she said, I would get up in the middle of the night and I would go all the way down the stairs to wake up the governess to get my crying baby. And, you know, I feel like that's kind of how their life is. Mm-hmm. And so like that, that the stuff you bring up really works for me in terms of um, oh. uh, Diane Baker's character, Elaine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's, um, yeah, she, she's an interesting character. I, I, uh, another thing that, um, well, this was in Christmas related, but throughout the movie, yeah, obviously it's one of those where whenever Paul sees Robert, Robert's horrible to him. And Paul is trying yes. to be as peaceful as he can, but it doesn't work. And then he goes back and tell you, says basically, you know, hey, uh, dear, uh, Robert was horrible to me again. And she says at one point, what is it? Um, I have never seen that once. She has never seen him be horrible to Paul once. And that's possibly true. She doesn't seem to see the rifle that he points at no, Paul halfway through the She doesn't see movie. anything. She, she's literally, she's... Uh, Paul and Stu are shooting cans. Paul has the rifle, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Robert and Stu are shooting cans. And Paul runs up and says, "Stop that!" And Robert raises the gun and points it at Paul. And then you hear um, uh, Elaine yelling, and she is running directly at them, l- looking at them, yelling, "I heard shots! What's going on?" And then I thought, um, "You see the kid pointing <laughs> the gun at your husband? That's your son." It's yeah the, the the wife I think that's one of, one of the problems I have with the film is I thought there was she almost goes like Kim Hunter in like Bad Ronald just just completely is disconnected from everything yes. that's going on she, around she her. is she has definitely got blinders on for different reasons mm-hmm. but yeah she refuses to see anything even when it's clear like when um he buys when Robert buys those tickets for the play yes. and she's like there's only two here and he's like well yeah that's right. And she's like, well, what, can't you trade him in for another day? And he, no, I don't want to, basically, is what he says. And she just kind of looks the other way. And, like, that's a, without even seeing a gun, I mean, that's a pretty obvious sign that there's a lot of tension in the family and that he really wants uh, Paul out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And then when he sends the flowers, I mean, that's a pretty good indicator, too. Like, he sends his mother these flowers that her abusive husband bought her. And, you know, it's like, it's like the mind tricks that he plays on her, like... They're they're more obvious than probably her husband was pulling, but she falls for them constantly. Do you know what I mean? Well, if she but fell I, for them from the husband, she is capable of falling. Yeah, for, you know, from the son. So but is is she at the end of the movie? There there is the point where where um, Paul yells to Crazy Robert, uh, you know, how about telling him about how awful his father was and how his mother wanted a divorce, and and Robert sort of doesn't believe it, but then kind of breaks down and. And the mother says, I'm sorry, we should so like I, we should have told you a long time ago or something like that. And I'm thinking, she really is in denial if she has told her new husband, my old husband was like this, 
um, I see a lot of that in Robert. And then he keeps coming to her and saying, he did this. And she says, no, he didn't. And it's really weird because it's, it's, I wonder, I, 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 the first time I watched it, I thought that Paul didn't know this about the husband because I missed that line from her. I mm -hmm. thought that I thought that after Dunlap gives the evidence and she breaks down crying, I thought they had an unseen conversation where she gave him all this information and then he went out and told it to Robert, not knowing. But the fact that he apparently knew how awful the husband was and she told him and they were trying to kind of work to make Robert's life better without revealing that. And yet she still kept ignoring her husband when he would say, uh, you know, he threatened my life eight times today. No, he didn't. And yeah, I think it, it, that it, was just the mother and her. I mean, that's how I right. viewed it. You know, like she was in obviously denial about her husband, but I think she was really in denial over her kid. And she literally had to get shot really before yes. she like kind of like it was almost like it jerked her into like, oh, my God, this is real. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. So one of the things I thought about and I didn't really make a note on and we'll get to Nate in a second. I'm sorry. Is um is that before you kind of see Stu like at the end and we can talk about the ending um is that i felt like the movie was making a comment on nature versus nurture and that we've got two kids who are the same age and are playing the same game quote-unquote game but um each one of them uh, are viewing it differently in that robert is like committing these horrible crimes right and um he's fully aware of what he's doing and he's evil he's evil that kid but <laughs> Stu was like a, thir a very typical 13-year-old kid. And, like, he reads his comics. He plays the game. Um, he really likes uh, Paul because Paul is, like, a really good father figure. And he's attached to him because he likes having a dad. And he's not mature at all. And um, he's getting there, you know, obviously. But he's a typical kid. And so um, I thought it was a really I thought they made a really interesting contrast to each other. And I thought maybe that was the point of the film. And in some ways, um, what you're talking about is that the mom is like another contrast to that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just all these different ways that they're approaching, like, what they want from each other in a way it's like crawl space right where they're all trying to give each yeah. other what they think they want i guess um and i forgot exactly what you said but but the you talking about the mom makes me think that we're seeing like all these different sort of it's okay if i view it this way because this is how i want it and robert thinks to himself it, my dad is a hero he's like this when he really wasn't and Stu is thinking oh these guys have the perfect family and we're playing the game do you know what i mean like there's all this disconnect happening in the film i think anyway um, but we can get back to all that, but I want to ask Nate what he thought of it. Nate, what'd you think? I think the husband should have left that wife like <laughs> towards the very beginning of this yes. film. Yes. I'm like, what was he thinking? I'm the kid points a, a gun at him and then later threatens to kill him. And it's like that night, the mom's like, you know what you should do? You should buy him a rifle. That's right. That's yes. right. Like, what are you talking Crazy. about? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. In Diane Baker's defense, her wardrobe was She's on nice. point. Oh, yes. oh her, no, 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 no hate on her wardrobe. Yeah, her wardrobe was amazing and her hair was amazing. And I wouldn't leave her either just so I can get into that closet. Just <laughs> Even saying. if it meant your death? <laughs> but it didn't mean my death. Everything worked out. And her wardrobe was still on point. That's all I'm going to say. It but only worked out because Robert was such a lousy shot. <laughs> I know. I know he really was. But go on, Nate. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um. No, I really liked the film. Um, I, you know, I thought it was interesting to see, um, you know, a film from the the early seventies uh, dealt with like the creepy kid because I've seen the Bad Seed, you sure. know, the movie that came out before this one, of course. Um, 
So, I mean, I know it wasn't anything new necessarily, but I had a lot of fun with it. I thought, you know, the actors were all really good. Um, the character's motivations uh, sometimes made it more difficult maybe for me to uh, sympathize probably sure. as much as I should have. Because even the um, the stepdad, when he finds out that um, – spoiler alert, sorry – but when he finds out that uh, Robert has murdered um, a kid at his school, uh, suddenly he don't even want to call the police. He's like, oh, we'll just get him some help. I'm like, no, he right. killed somebody. Let's not be insane about this. Yeah, I think that's the contrast between the dad and him, though, is that um, Paul is super compassionate. Like, he works really hard to get along with Robert at the beginning, and he tries really hard to, like, approach it, like, from an angle where everybody's sort of happy, even though he feels really uncomfortable about what's going on. I feel like he's overly compassionate in a way, whereas the father was o- overly uncompassionate, if that's a word, or uh, incompassionate. I can't, I'm not even sure what the right word is for that. Compassionless? Compassionless. Thank you. Um, I just I just made up like eight words right now, but um, <laughs> I wrote but, them all down. Yeah, thank you. But um, I feel like they're opposite. They're so opposite ends of the spectrum that like I I kind of like when he said that I think he was like oh my gosh he's going to be devastated blah 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 so let's just do it this way you know what I mean like I feel like he's almost like too concerned about the mom at that point but I felt like that for me that was in character and it might just be the fact that Ed Nelson is my silver haired fox. But, you know, I roll I roll with whatever he wants is what I'm saying. Okay, go ahead, Nate. I just feel like I couldn't have stuck around very long, especially once he pointed a gun at me. And when I said, you know, put the gun away, he's like, make me. And then he <laughs> threatens him later, to t- threatens to actually kill him. And then same with the, the housekeeper. I'm like, I would have quit. I mean, he's like such a, a, a jerk to her. When he's he, very mean. He throws that thing at her. And I couldn't believe he threw something at her because that just goes to another level because she's not even part of the family. It's one thing when like families get into arguments and sometimes it gets a little rowdy. It's another thing when somebody is working in your house and you're throwing objects at them. Like that's a line crosser. You know what I mean? And I was shocked that he he has no he just doesn't give a shit. He feels like he's sort of above the law. Do you know what I mean? Robert, the little boy. And like he'll just do something like that to a woman who probably makes like three bucks an hour, you know, I like, that was a shocking scene to me. That was like the worst offense of all of it, to be honest. Well, and, and he, shit at your maid. he threatens uh, her as well. You know, like, Oh, my mom will never That's believe right. you over me. And, and he's probably right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I just felt like he seemed obviously demented uh, very early on. And I didn't think he hit it very well. I mean, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, I, I just didn't think he hit it very well for, to anyone. So I, I don't know. I just I couldn't have I couldn't have been around him. I'd be like, wife, um, you know, you're Diane Baker. You know, uh, you are just awesome in every conceivable way. <laughs> but your kid's not awesome. So if we could, you know, uh, to get him, you know, some kind of help or something, and he doesn't ever threaten my life again, then then we're going to be all right. I promise. But if he keeps threatening my life, then, you know, that that's not cool. That's not cool, Diane. I don't care how many of those great Empire waist dresses you wear, Diane. I'm <laughs> out of here. I'm out of here. Yeah, okay. and then you could go on to be a senator. I could, and then have my daughter get kidnapped oh. by Robert, probably. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Robert and Ronald. Okay. <laughs> So, um, 
Can we just talk about Stu for a second? Because well, I guess I should ask everybody. Hapless Stu. Yeah. Did 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 you have a favorite character? Mine would be Stu. Uh, Dan, I, I know you hate everybody in the movie, but do you have a favorite character? I, I, I don't think no, I'm just hate kidding. Um, no, <laughs> I'm I, um, teasing. You know, I, I really did like Dunlap quite a bit, especially yeah. at the point where um, where uh, he, he just, that incredulous look he gets on his face with, uh, he killed someone. You have to call the police. And he and he's not um, and and uh, Paul is just like no 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 we'll 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 find some other help. But I did like Stu. He he was charming. Although although I did wonder there. I mean, should we should we say what happens at the very well, end? Well, let's let's ask everybody this question, then we'll get into Stu because I feel like we need a lead up to to the end for Stu. Um, so Joanna, did you have a favorite character? Oh yes, I like Stu too. I'm really curious where you know what his future is going to be like. Being, you know, <laughs> having this best friend of Robert um, and being traumatized. Uh, I mean, is this a setup for a follow-up movie? Is, oh, or a is, series, Stu. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stu, the Wonder Years. Yeah, what is this future going to be like uh, with this friend that kills people? Yeah. Um, Nate? Um, I guess the private eye, Dunlap. Um, okay. I like Stu a lot. I felt really badly for him, but... I really wanted, um, I guess, uh, more from him at the end. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, but it, it fits his character. So I can't hate on that. There's this really great moment. I guess it was Christmas Day, maybe, where um, Elaine and Robert are out of the house. And Robert tells Stu, like, you've got to stay away from Paul because he's on to us. And, you know, I don't want you spilling your guts. And I know you will. And so... Um, he uh, Paul comes in to see Stu in the bedroom and Stu's sleeping with a comic on his chest. And so the so Paul shuts the door really quietly and then Stu just sits up and starts chewing his gum again and reading the comic. And it's this really funny moment, really well done. Like what kids do, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When like they don't want somebody bothering them. And, uh, and he does it all day. And then he always tries to come up with excuses like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom now and whatever. But I feel like he was a really compassionate character because he, he was such a pushover. And he like he let Robert rule the roost as far as he would go. Like there were no boundaries for Stu in this relationship. And but he wanted a buddy and he wanted, I think, that family. You know, he looked at them. They spent every Christmas together. And yes, there was a lot of tension, but like it was a family because he was he had nobody to spend his holidays with. And so he would get carted off to different places like camp and then school. And sometimes he'd even stay with the headmaster. Um, when there was no time, when there's no camp or school. And so he was like a really lonely kid. But then it goes all kind of haywire at the end. So um, just to be a little spoilery here, Robert um, is, you know, shooting at everybody, basically. And there's a confrontation between the adults and him. And he has his breakdown. And um, and things start to fall apart for him, both... Um, what he's done has come to light and also the fact that I think he realizes that he's sort of living this really crazy sort of internal life about his dad and struggling with things. And then the police come and they're taking Robert away and it's this really chaotic, upsetting scene. And then there's this voiceover with Stu talking about the game and um, he references Captain Marvel in it, but I can't remember exactly. Oh, oh the, the police would never arrest Captain Marvel or something to that effect. And Is it Batman? Or- there's a couple mm-hmm. different cartoon references. Mm-hmm. Take him away. Cops don't take Batman away. 
ever. We're just playing, just fooling around. You know, Spence is in Seattle. Mrs. Gwynn is in Atlantic City. Nobody got hurt. Not really. You're making an awful mistake. We're just playing a little game. Just a game, that's all. Somebody? Tell them. You realize that Stu really thought it, everything was a game and that he's his own kind of crazy. It's just a different crazy <laughs> than Robert was. And it's kind of a shocking ending because both kids are insane. So for me, Rob, uh, Stu was the anchor of the film. And I guess Paul is to a degree. But Stu was like the character that you clung to because he was the innocent child. He was like a child, like like you would expect a child to be. And so you're watching him and you're like, oh, this is this is right. Even though I'm seeing this really horrible nihilistic sort of thing happening to the other kid, I've got Stu. And then you find out that Stu is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And except, you're like, oh. Except he has that, the, the interesting thing where he... Um, where Paul confronts him and he says, oh no, it was all a game we played like this. And the great thing is that there, the, the scene where Paul goes to Elaine and says, um, I think uh, Robert killed someone. And Elaine says, get out of here, get out of here. And it's funny because like the next, if he had just waited till the next morning, Dunlap shows up with the proof. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's like he, he read the diary he and then he he said this to his wife. His wife is throwing him out. Now he goes up to talk to Stu. And I did love this Ed Nelson moment. He goes to talk to Stu. Stu says, "No, it was all a game." And then there's a shot in like their um, uh, near their main staircase, and and she's in the foreground on the phone. And Ed Nelson kind of comes down with a sort of sheepish look on his face, like, "Oh crap." How do yeah. I apologize for this one? And That's I thought, right. oh, I can't even imagine how do I... Uh, you know what? I said a half hour ago that your son killed a kid. I get things wrong sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Please, <laughs> please forgive me. Yeah, um, that's right. When he when he thinks it is really just the game, it's really funny. Like, yeah. um, we know it's not, you know, but like, they just his he's really got his tail between his legs. But it's too late because you just accused your kid of being a murderer. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, it's hilarious. And it, like, and it was, it was, it's, it's interesting too the way they they put it together where the scene right before that one is the scene where Robert and his mom are out eating and he basically says if you had to choose between me and him who would you choose and she says well you and he says I'm like I think he's trying to get me thrown out of there or something like that that's right yes yeah, she planted the scene. scene yes in the very next scene Paul like a dope rather than waiting for Dunlap who is celebrating Christmas because people celebrate Christmas is is unavailable and it's yeah it's it just just the look on his face when he's coming down the steps I was like I don't know how in the hell I would explain what I just did. You know, it's it's really interesting because they do make reference, both Stu and um, Elaine make reference to how much Robert loves, like, mysteries and crime stories mm-hmm. and how he, like, we had the play, he guessed who the, it was a mystery play, and he guessed who the killer was five minutes in. And so he was telegraphing what he knew Paul was going to do because he understood the plot of the game. Even though it was reality, it was still following um, a plot. You know what I mean? And so that was really interesting. So Robert was like almost too smart, but um, but he still did kid things, you know, like there was still a kid there, which I think yeah. was what makes him so interesting. Um, yeah. And I, re- I like that actor quite a bit. I only know him from Jaws 2. I don't know what else he's done. Uh, there, there's a moment with the, where Stu tells uh, Paul, oh, it was a game and the way we killed this kid in the game was perfect. No one could ever figure it out. It was the perfect murder. But then the moment Dunlap shows up and says, yeah, this kid got killed, 
and he and and uh, Paul says, "Was it an accident?" And Dunlap says, "It was made to look like one, but there were a whole lot of things that were suspicious." Yeah. And then he just begins to name all these very obvious things, and you think, and that point, it's like, is Robert as smart as? No, he's, um, he's a thirteen-year-old. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I said it before, but he's hiding the diary under his bed. The maid could find it. You know what I mean? Just coming in to clean the room. It was the most obvious yeah. place to hide your confession. And yeah, that's it, true too, because he wouldn't have made his own bed. And, and no, no, yeah. Oh, wow, that's so yeah, he he did things that. he did things that were really immature, and yeah. but at the same time he was really smart too. This is why I think it's such a good companion with um, Perfect Neighborhood. That movie I talked about with uh, Virginia Madsen and Patrick Warburton. Although that kid's a lot smarter, but um, but it's kind of interesting because it's a kid who maybe feels like he's more adult than he is, but but is doing very adult things, um, and that's what makes it so compelling. Maybe, um, but uh, but yeah, Stu kind of broke my heart a little. Um, through the whole film, I think he's just the cutest thing I've ever seen, and I have no maternal instincts. So me saying that <laughs> is a huge deal. Um, I don't know if there's anything else we want to hit on about the film. If there's like some final thoughts or yeah, I wanted to chip in that it's a pretty cool coincidence that Christopher Shea, who's the actor that plays Stu, actually plays. Um, he he appears in a Christmas episode, a mid '60s of That Girl, where he. Uh-huh. He is spending um, time alone at a boarding school and Anne-Marie has to, it's this Christmas story. She has to stay with him so that he's not alone over Christmas um, at this boarding school. So (laughs) like he's played a very similar role in the past, um, even in a Christmas story or, you know, in another Christmas uh, program. So that's a pretty weird coincidence. That is a weird coincidence, and that would have been a great extra credit if I'd known, like, to watch that episode, like, before you watch the little game. So you picture him with Anne-Marie, and then she goes away, and then he hooks up with Robert, and yeah. everything just snowballs into the hell that it became. Yeah. Wow. Who? That's so meta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a cute kid. I'm not sure I've seen him anything else. I'm obviously familiar with him as Linus. Um, but, sure. uh But I don't really know that I've actually seen him in anything else. But he's such a cute little kid. He's in a couple episodes of Odd Couple. Oh, the TV hmm. series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for him because his filmography is actually pretty impressive. Like he quit acting at a very young age. But um, but like what he did in those few years that he acted was pretty impressive. Um, Yeah. So that's interesting. Oh, my gosh. Well, look what you learn when you invite Joanna over for your mm-hmm. Christmas special. Hooray. Yay. Um, so uh, does anybody have anything else they want to say about the movie before we move on to our before we go from a little game to our little game? Can, can I just say a, a f- few more things that, sure. that I saw? Um, this is just mentioning off of two things Nate said. One is what was Elaine and Paul's like courtship and wedding like? Wouldn't it have been a hell? I mean, just like every time Robert was there, wouldn't wouldn't it have just been awful and couldn't? Uh, it's it's just I just I just think how did this couple get to this point? If because Robert is awful from the moment he appears on screen, and there's nowhere to go from from sort of that the way he does his performance, he's awful from moment one. So I just think how did these two fall in love, go through romance, all sorts of other stuff. I mean, I guess he was away at school a lot, but still. Well, there's there summers, be, yeah. I mean, yeah, it would have to be, to be either a super quick courtship. But, you know, I'm curious, like, what's got left out, because this is based on a novel. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I would like to read it. I always forget every time I see this, it's on, based on a novel. and then, But it's something I would definitely like to read and see where they fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and the last thing was, um, as much as I love Paul, he goes around the whole time smoking a pipe, looking very fatherly. Did they do that? Do you think to make him more like a um, like a Mr. Cleaver or like a like a Robert Pro- Young type character? Probably, but I will say my dad was a pipe smoker, and he looked like Charles Bronson. So they came oh, in. Oh, nice. Yeah, he did. They came in different sizes. Those pipe smokers. But yeah, I do think, I think Paul is supposed to be like super compassionate. And I do think that there's supposed to be a Ward Cleaver thing happening to some degree. Maybe not like, he's obviously not like the perfect father. I mean, he's struggling to figure out what to do with a kid. But he is this guy that like rolls with the punches and, um, and he's like, you know, he's just like he's laid trying. back. Yeah, he is yeah. trying. He really is. You know? Yeah. So, and, and the last thing with him is that when he's chasing Robert with the shotgun on Stu at the end of the movie, at one point he yells, Robert, Robert, where are you? And you know what? Surprisingly enough, Robert doesn't respond. And so as <laughs> much as I love you, much as I love you, Paul. But that but that that was it. That was what I had. Okay. Um, so I think we've got like three thumbs up and one maybe from you, Dan. Uh, I, I liked quite a bit of it, but there were there were moments in it where I thought maybe like you said with the novel, I feel like maybe in streamlining it, they may have left a couple yeah. things out. Like the establishing shot of the house. You don't get an establishing shot of the house, which is really weird. You get a strange shot along their driveway where you don't see the full house. I will say this, though, the photography was really impressive, um, yeah. especially like when it was focusing on just two characters. There's a lot of I should say the lighting is what made it so impressive. The lighting was cool because they live in this very like so the play, the movie set in California. So it's a California Christmas where there's no snow. There's no weather at all. You know, it's mildly chilly, maybe. And um and they live in this house that looks like a rich person's house in the hills, basically, or a ranch type house. And um, and so the windows, it's got a very sort of warm interior to it, even though in a way it's kind of cold, too. It's kind of stucco-y. And, um, but it, it's like the shades are always drawn. It's always dark in the house. And so when, uh, like, Stu and Robert are, like, uh, alone together in the uh, Robert's room, there's a lot of, like, shadows that fall on them and cover parts of their faces. And, and so you're like, you're only seeing part of the picture. It's really obscuring like certain things. And it's really well done. Like the way it captures, it's almost like um, it's adding nuances to the characters that the actors are doing their own thing, but then sort of the lighting is adding another layer to them. And, um, and even, I mean, that's not the first time it's ever happened in a movie or on television, but I, it really stood out to me in this one. Um, I was really impressed with that. Uh, I really liked that aspect. Is it a house that looks like a Mexican restaurant, though? It is. Yes, I would classify it as a house that looks like a Mexican restaurant. It's not as <laughs> it's not as ornate or opulent as the spell, mm-hmm. which basically looks like a hotel with the restaurant in it. But um, this felt like a home to me. But it, mm-hmm. it's definitely a rich person's home. Like there was no even if you hadn't seen uh, Elaine and Robert on horses you know, on their own property, you could mm-hmm. tell that they were living pretty large. Yeah. You know. Okay. Anybody else? Nope. So let me do some background real quick uh, before we move on. Um, this movie originally aired on October 30th, 1971 as an ABC movie of the week. Um, I believe it was directed by Paul Wankos. You know, I wrote that down without actually looking. And it was written by Carol Sobieski, who is probably best known for doing the adaptation of uh, Fanny Flagg's Fried Green Tomatoes, um, which is important to remember because this uh, movie uh, ran against on CBS something called Funny Face, uh, which was a Sandy Duncan TV series, I believe. The new Dick Van Dyke show, which featured Fanny Flagg. So Fanny Flagg actually ran against um, somebody that she would end up collaborating with uh, years later um, on an Oscar-nominated film. And also Mary Tyler Moore. 
On NBC, it ran against The Good Life, which was a TV series with Donna Mills and Larry Hagman that I'm dying to see um, because, you know, they would get paired up later as sort of Abby Ewing and Jerry Ewing, um, you know, in Dallas and Knott's Landing. Um, and then it also ran on NBC against something called Grand Prix, which was a theatrical film that I think starred James Garner. Um, yes, yeah. as, as I said earlier, it didn't do very well in the ratings. It came in at number 77 for the year of um, TV movie rankings. Uh, it tied with a movie called The Deadly Hunt. The rating share was a 16.8 slash 30, which just simply means that 16.8 million homes had it on, which represents 30% of the uh, viewing audience um, in America that night. Uh, it was shot in Thousand Oaks, California, which it looks like. Um, and somebody named Jerry Beigel of the LA Times um, enjoyed, I think I mentioned him earlier, enjoyed this uh, movie very much. He called it both an explosive uh, triangle and a love-hate triangle. Um, he concentrated a lot on the three main characters there, Elaine and Robert and um, Paul. And uh, he felt that uh, the subject matter may be offensive to some since it depicts children in a very negative, nihilistic way. And also, I've already done this on an older episode, and I don't remember which one, but just to give a little background on Ed Nelson, who you probably recognize um, maybe from Peyton Place, but he was also a pretty prolific character actor through um, the 70s and into the 80s and beyond. Um, one of my favorite actors... Uh, I think the piece of trivia that I always reuse about him was that after he retired from acting, he um, went back to school and at 71 he got his degree, uh, which I always think is like the coolest thing ever. He was married for 63 years to the same woman. He had six children. Um, his son Christopher Nelson appeared with him in Murder in Peyton Place, and he actually had his own TV series, which was a talk show, and I think it was just called The Ed Nelson Show. And I'm doing this off memory, but I wrote an article about Ed Nelson, which I posted on my Twitter, if anybody wants to find the link to that, um, after he passed away in 2014. He actually died um, within a month of Lauren Bacall and James Garner, and I only bring that up now because they were all featured on an episode of Rockford Files together, so it's kind of interesting that they all died so close together. But... Um, um, what was the, what was the, oh, so he did this, he had a talk show. He had one of the guys that the story of Alfred Hitchcock's rope was based on, you know, the two people who actually committed the murder. He had one of them on his show and they actually gave a really candid talk about living in, life in prison. Um, I don't, I think that show, you can't find it anywhere, but it does exist. I have a TV guide ad for it. Um, it's really very seventies. It's super cool. If anybody um, comes across it, I think I posted it on the article that I wrote and he showed up on stuff like Canon. He worked for Roger Corman for a while. He was actually a monster in a Roger Corman movie, which is hilarious. Um, and he's wonderful. And I think he's wonderful in this. I think he's a really gifted, uh, very likable actor. Um, and I will watch anything that he's in. And so this was really good for me to see because um, I just like looking at him. That's all. Okay. So I'm done. Feedback time. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, so real quick, uh, let me just do a piece of feedback, which I'm going to have to actually edit into the earlier part. I totally forgot. It's just related to a little game. And then we'll, we'll just do our little announcements, like if anything's going on online, and then we'll do our next film announcement and we'll be done. So, um, we got one piece of feedback, well, two pieces, actually. One was just left on my Facebook page. The other one was emailed to me from our good friend, Jack DVD 78. Um, he said he's here with the last... Uh, with a quick last minute incoherent jumbled feedback, which isn't incoherent at all. There is something seriously wrong with the spoiled entitled kid in this movie. Actually, by the end of it, there is something wrong with both kids. It, in so many words, the son goes on about how pretty his mom is and dad was and basically calls Ed Nelson ugly. I know Amanda noticed this. There's one moment when the friend from the military school discusses the way he imagined killing someone else. It was brutal. 
The ending leaves me to wonder how much therapy the friend needs, or did a lot more happen back at that military school than we were than we were to know. Anyway, a great little movie, simple story, brisk, briskly paced. Thanks for bringing this movie to my attention. Happy holidays to Amanda, Dan, and Nate, and Joanna. Um, and then Will Erickson left on my Facebook, um, he's no bad Ronald, but still. Which I think is a pretty yeah. good, that yeah. should have been the tagline, except bad Ronald hadn't been made yet. So what we're going to do now is we're going to turn this over to Joanna, and she's going to give us, um, depending on how much time we have, like three or four titles. So what we do is, if you haven't heard any of our other older episodes where we do this game, one of us, or Joanna, um, will come up with like a sort of a generic-sounding title, and then it is up to the other uh, players, uh, the three left, um, to come up with what they think the movie is about and to cast it. And um, and it's really fun because we try to keep it in the vein of like the stereotypical TV movie, although not always stereotypical. I think uh, maybe sometimes we end up on the moon or or something yes. like to that effect <laughs> or alligators eat choice to wit which is really oh, yes. upsetting that's so upsetting um i don't like that at all but um so so it's really fun and so we're doing it this is going to be holiday themed so joanna picked some um christmas titles and we're all going to cast it and tell you what the film, what we think the film is about and then joanna's going to tell us what it's really about so why don't you go ahead and get us started joanna okay and while i'm thinking about it let me take a small detour i'm sorry um, okay. I saw something recently. Um, it's a brand new Christmas episode. TV movie fans will love this. I want to. I want to encourage everybody to seek this thing out. I don't know if you're fans of Amy Sedaris. Oh yes. Sure. Oh okay. yeah, her new show. We've got a brand new series. Exactly. It's called At Home with Amy Sedaris, and it's it's a little crazy, of course. Um, she's crazy, so her series, of course, is crazy. But she's uh, giving instructions about how to, you know, make crafts. It's a craft show. Anyway, the the new um, holiday episode is called Holidays, and you need to seek this out because um, you might recognize a certain Zuni fetish doll that pops up and sort of. Oh, very yeah, cool. Sort of ruins her um, Christmas celebration and preparations that she's got going. So uh, <laughs> um, it's unexpected in Christmas, but it's perfect, Amy. It's great. Oh, that's so great. Okay, I wrote that down. I'm definitely going to check that out. <laughs> okay, Joanna, you start, start the game. Are you ready for your title? I am. Yes. Christmas Eve. Oh, my God, you're joking. No. <laughs> that's super generic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll start. Um, I, I hate to do this because Nate picked Robert Urich as his favorite actor when we did our favorite actors episode, but I always have to take Robert Urich for these TV games <laughs> because he's just the first guy that pops up in my head. But th- this stars uh, Robert Urich and Eva Marie Saint as uh, Mr. and Mrs. Claus who got separated in a time warp. And so oh. she continued to age like that movie. Do you remember that movie Late for Dinner? with uh, Peter Berg, and I can't remember the other actor's name, something Schwimmer, um, where they get frozen, and then they wake up, and their wife, his wife has aged, mm-hmm. but he stayed the same age, and he goes and looks for her. It's a really beautiful film. But anyway, so Robert Yerk is, is Santa Claus, but he's that Santa Claus that Mickey Rooney was in that Rankin and Bass Santa Claus special where he was really hot. And so... so <laughs> Somehow, and not that even even saying was a beautiful older woman too, but what so what happens is um, he gets something happens and he ends up in a time warp and she ends up running the North Pole like she hires somebody to be Santa Claus and she keeps everything going because nobody knows what's become of uh, the real Santa Claus and he wakes up um, somewhere and the other pole whatever the the South Pole right and and he's been kid he had been kidnapped by people trying to destroy Christmas and he has to go back and find his wife and and 
rejoin the Christmas traditions that she'd been keeping up on his behalf. It's partially a thriller, but there's some romance there and um, and a little bit of drama. And it would air on ABC on Sunday night on Christmas Eve. I think somebody's going to make that movie. I, I hope they do because it would be really good. Okay, who wants to go next? I, I can go. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, now what I have here is this is a it's a um, Christmas Carol variation because we need another one of those. But that that's just what came to mind here. Um, it stars uh, Hal Linden. I didn't give him a name. I wanna I wanna call him B. Cornelius Worthington the Third. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna call him B. And Hal, uh, this is Hal, sort of like an American Christmas Carol with Henry Winkler mm. when he's older in yes. it, and then you see him. Um, that, so this is Hal. Uh, he's he's much older, and it is Christmas Eve, and he is the owner of the largest snowplow manufacturing company in the United States. So he loves snow. This is his favorite time of year. <laughs> he, he loves, loves the snow. Loves, the first time you see him, uh, he's sort of like uh, he he's got like a glass a bottle of champagne and he's smashing it against the plow, and then he gets in and drives it around as all the employees cheer him on and everything. The problem is that he is actually kind of a jerk. All the years of all the all the sort of backbiting and the terrible backstabbing and terrible stuff you have to do to become the man who runs the biggest snowplow manufacturing plant in the United States has just made him kind of an unpleasant guy. And even though he still puts up this facade of I love Christmas, Christmas Eve is my favorite, it's not really happening. And I think, just because I want to get Bigfoot in this, I think <laughs> it's set in the Pacific Northwest. And on Christmas Eve, and he's set in Pacific Northwest because he, he is fascinated by Bigfoot. And that actually, you'll learn about that in one of the, the flashbacks when the, when the ghosts show up. But what happens is he, he goes home that night on Christmas Eve to just be by himself and Bigfoot appears kind of like there's a movie called Cry Wilderness where Bigfoot appears to this kid randomly um, Bigfoot appears and tells him that three ghosts will be coming by past present future and they will be uh, coming by to make his life better and the, the ghosts show up and the first one takes him way back at when he was played by Adam Rich and he he <laughs> I, 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 get, I, I gave him that ridiculously long name, but I'm not sure if uh, that means that he was born into wealth or not. I kind of don't want him to be born into wealth. I just want him to have a pretentious name. So he's just maybe living in the Midwest somewhere, and it's snowing, and he wants to help his dad shovel the driveway, but he's too little. And he's Adam Rich, and he says something charming. Maybe that segment even has a laugh track on it, so it reminds you of Eight is Enough. Then they go, and, and the um, sort of teenage uh, um, uh, B is Lance, Ker is Lance Kerwin. Was he, um, uh, he was a kid, kid actor, right? Yes, was, yeah. was that show? He yes, I'm just blank for a second there. And with him, we get the sequence where he buys his first shovel, and he begins to sort of shovel uh, snow on, on the side and make money off of that. And then we cut to a little bit later when it finally is Hal Linden, and he's beginning to rise up in, in the industry, and now he has like 20 shovels, and he's thinking of buying a snow plow and all this great sort of stuff. And there's a woman in his life, played by Judith Light, who he's he's very close to, and they seem to be possibly getting married sometime soon. The, the present one shows up, 
and uh, shows him how life is nowadays. And it's pretty much, it's very Scrooge-like, where he treats uh, uh, the, the facade as that he's this great guy, but really he's kind of a jackass, especially to his assistant, who could be played by um, uh, Charlene Tilton. And so you, you see how rotten he is. Then the future one shows up and takes him to the future and shows him future stuff. And then the, the two sort of twisteroonies when we get near the end, is that he, when he was growing up, he loved Christmas and he loved Santa and Bigfoot. Those were his two favorite things. He's already seen Bigfoot. The last place the ghosts take him to is the North Pole to see Santa. And Santa and Mrs. Claus are played by Eddie Albert and Eva Gabor, and they're fantastic. <laughs> and and, and what, what happens then is you, you learn at some point during this, maybe because all the, the, the ghosts are sort of unrecognizable, you can sort of, like, because all the ghosts are played by Judith Light. And they're, they're sort of like Seven Faces of Dr. Lou with Tony Randall. They're all played by Judith Light. And so <laughs> he, he has this weird feeling when he meets the ghost, like, don't I know you from somewhere? And then at the end of the movie, when he wakes up, obviously, he, he's turned over a new leaf and he goes to meet up with Judith Light. And maybe as they're walking away from the camera, she turns and gives us a little wink. And maybe a little, like, the stardust or something flies around the screen. <laughs> Aww. So that's, yeah, that's I love Christmas it. Stuff. It's a feel good. Yeah, it's a feel good. It's a feel good. <laughs> Nate? Mine might be a little less of a feel good film. Oh, Uh-oh. yay. Um, <laughs> so it's the early 70s, December 24th. Picture it, if you will. <laughs> so we have Agnes Moorhead, who's living in an old Victorian mansion. Yes. She has summoned her only daughter, played by Donna Mills. Oh. <gasps> To her, to her childhood home, which is this Victorian mansion for Christmas Eve. They're estranged because they had a falling out years ago. So what I'm thinking is that she's asked her to come home so they can make amends. And she's uh, claiming that, you know, she's very sick. So Donna Mills shows back up. But what she uncovers is that Agnes Moorhead, her mother, has been taken in by an evil cult who want to cleanse the house of what they consider to be Donna Mills you know, indiscretions when she was um, uh. having an affair out of wedlock when she lived there before. So they decide they're going to sacrifice her on Christmas Eve to uh, basically purify her. So the movie's going to be about Donna Mills trying to escape the clutches of these evil cult members in this giant mansion all night Christmas Eve. And can't she survive till Christmas morning? Oh, my God, that is so good. I would see that like 5,000 times. Wow. I would. I love it. I love it. Oh, my God. That's so good. First, I thought it was going to go kind of uh, home for the holidays, you know, like somebody's trying to murder her or she, you know what I mean? But then I was like, uh-huh. one daughter, how are they going to do that? Oh, so good. Anything with Donna Mills. So good. Well, see, um, she fights back against the cult members. And actually, this is a movie where the evil people are the ones dying one by one. Oh, like well, the nobody... victims doing the killing. You can't <laughs> she has fuck. To. Nice. You can't fuck with Donna Mills. Oh, no, no, can't. no. She's she very will, tough in this. She will destroy you. She will destroy you. I mean, that's, everybody knows it. Everybody, except this cult, apparently. Oh, my God, so good. Plus, Agnes Moorhead and Donna Mills on screen together would be, like, really delightful, I think. Joanna? Actually, Nate wasn't that far off. Oh, <laughs> really? Shit. Well, he was the closest. I'll put it that way. Okay. He was the closest to what the movie is actually all about. I don't know. I, I kind of like dance. I, I love um, Bigfoot. But um, oh, yeah, <laughs> wins every time, doesn't it? <laughs> let me tell you what the real movie is all about. It came out in 1986. I believe it aired on NBC and it stars Loretta Young, classic Hollywood. Uh, oh, I, Loretta Young. I know this movie. I know that I have the TV guide out for it. Yeah. 
Yeah, she plays a woman named Amanda, who's a wealthy but eccentric woman who wishes to leave her estate to a homeless shelter after she passes away, but her son protests. Without revealing she's been diagnosed with a terminal illness, she invites her three estranged grandchildren to visit her on Christmas Eve. And her three grandchildren are estranged from her because they don't like their father, which is her son. And he's taking Amanda to court to declare her incompetent. Uh, Despite all this conflict, it's actually a a Christmas uh, movie about family coming together. And it, it has a nice happy ending. And it's actually a remake of a 1947 Hollywood movie uh, by the same title that stars Anne Harding, George Raft, and Randolph Scott. Loretta Young comes home in a touching holiday story. Does it have a happy ending? She's a mother struggling to bring her family together for Christmas. I want them to come because they're ready to put the past behind them. It shouldn't take a miracle. And there's not much time. But it will. She's going to be disappointed. And now Arthur Hill, Susan Hubley, Trevor Howard, and Young in the heartwarming holiday movie, Christmas Eve. Wow. So basically Nate's version is like a metaphor for a family coming together and dealing with obstacles. You know what I mean? Like he took it he took it into a into that metaphorical route. Right. He- it's basically the same film. I mean, I can't see a difference. Oh, yes. It's exactly the same. I will say this. I was going to have at the end of mine, like, um, the only cult members left are, like, Agnes Moorhead and the cult leader, let's say, William Shatner. And um, the two of them, like, are, you know, kind of arguing back and forth because um, she kind of has a change of heart. And then she ends up stabbing William Shatner with a ceremonial dagger instead of her daughter because in the end she couldn't do it. So... That's basically how Christmas Eve of a Reddy Young movie ends, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's like it's like you wrote it, mate. So weird. <laughs> that actually sounds really good. I really like Loretta Young. I saw her in um oh shit, of course now I can't remember the name of the movie. She played later in life, like it was one of the last things she did was a TV movie, Lady in the Corner, um, where she was running a fashion magazine, but she was deemed too old to run the magazine. And um Brian Keith plays her love interest, and it's this really good movie, sort of that deals with ageism. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen as many classic movies as I should have, but I kind of know her as that older actress. And I really liked her in Lady in the Corner. And so that Christmas Eve movie always stuck out to me as something I wanted to see because um, I have the TV Guide ad for it. And it's a really nice ad. And uh, and I would look and I thought, I bet that's a really good movie. But I never actually looked up what it was about. Just funny. I just, figured, I just figured Loretta Young would carry it, which she probably does. Awesome. Okay. Well, so so Nate guessed it uh, verbatim. So what's <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but we'll throw Bigfoot in there, though, just to make it palpable for everybody. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, Joanna, what's the next one? The Three Kings. Okay, who wants to go? Hmm. Okay, so this stars Robert Urich in three <laughs> parts because they couldn't get Rich Little. And so, do you remember that Rich Little? I know you do, Joanna. Where he, is it a Christmas Carol? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Rich Little. I can't watch that because he does like the Truman Capote. As, yeah, Tiny Tim. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. No, no, no. Um, I don't like that. But this has Robert Urich in it, so that makes it okay. He's like Matt King, right? And he's got three little boys, and they are the three kings, right? So it's like, I don't know, Timmy, Tommy, and Tony. They're, and Robert Urich is, is like a businessman who's like super rich, 
and but he spends very little time with his kids so they have to kind of pass the time like in their own imaginary world it sort of leads to death and destruction for people around them <laughs> because they're really violent and because there's nobody there to kind of teach them the right ways like let's say they don't kill anybody but like they're they're really nasty kids they're spoiled and they're lonely and they're always messing around and getting in trouble and so um the dad has to figure out this isn't very good so i'm just trying to figure out how to work this in the the dad has to figure out how to make things better for these kids while still maintaining his multi-million dollar corporation. So he meets Stephanie Powers, whose name is, let's say, Joanna Queen. Does that work? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so and she comes to the house while he goes away on a business trip. They fall in love. There's a whole romance story in there. And she says, oh, well, I'll come and spend the holidays with you. And then he gets called away on his, um, you know, uh, dishwashing uh, lotion business and so he has to go take off to parts unknown and she's left with the three kings and she has to teach them the meaning of Christmas and that they need to be their maid and not tie her up and things like that that's the best I can do off the top of my head the three kings all right I, I've got I've got something here yeah I don't know if for some reason the three kings completely stymied my brain when you yeah. said that I don't know why um, but I, I got it now uh, there are three um gentlemen who are professional three kings impersonators lauren green walter pigeon and ed asner and what they do <laughs> is they go from place to place uh sort of uh, uh sort of nativity scene to nativity scene around the u.s um and they just kind of stand there you know like um you know those sort when they recreate the the scenes and and they just have people stand there like a living portrait kind of thing and and they they go from place to place but the thing that people don't know and they haven't quite pieced this together even though these guys have been doing it for years is that there's always some kind of big robbery in the town, either in, in the town where it takes place or a nearby town, and generally three things are stolen from that town. Myrrh. Gold, gold <laughs> frankincense, and myrrh. <laughs> myrrh. And, That's interesting because Murray from the Mary Tyler Moore show, they just kidnap and Gavin McLeod over and over again? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, okay. my, 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 my thought was that, so you, you see them and they do their thing and they look like great guys. And then there's sort of a, a cool Mission Impossible style heist of some gold or something. And then they break into a department store and steal some frankincense and myrrh. And there's a cop, and I'm trying to figure out who's playing the cop. Um, I think the cop is going to be played by Meredith Baxter Burney. And she is a cop, sort of cop detective who has been... Maybe she's with the FBI. How about that? She's been following this trail across the country of these um, thefts, trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And so they sort of, they kind of know her because they keep arriving in town together, but she doesn't think these nice gentlemen are doing this. So she's trying to piece it together. And I think maybe something like, maybe uh, when they go into the one town, there's like... um, um, uh, like uh, uh, a crook hides like secret microfilm in a container of myrrh. I'm not 100% sure what myrrh is. Can you do <laughs> yeah. that? Would it ruin it? Uh, and, and they hide it in the myrrh. So when the three guys steal that myrrh, suddenly they've got um, Meredith Baxter burning after them. And let's say um, Kevin Dobson, because he always oh, looks a little crazy. I love as, him. As the, as this sort of, as this sort of, um, as this other thief, and the things kind of build up as they go. Like maybe they go into one town and they steal gold that gangsters were after. So now, by the time you get to the end of the movie, whatever small town they go into, there's like, there's the three of them, there's the cop, 
there's these gangsters, there's this thief, maybe there's this mad scientist or something, something to do with the frankincense, and all these people are like building and coming after them and coming after them as we're drawing closer to Christmas. And it's sort of like the only person who's actually a good guy technically is Meredith Baxter Bernie's character, but you grow to love the three kings and you don't want to see them get hurt. So it's kind of a it's kind of a slow build because the fir- maybe the first five minutes are just slow pan over this nativity scene until you get to Lauren Green. Walter Pigeon and Ed Asner. And you're like, ah, and then it just builds and builds from there. It, it so. makes me think of going in style. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um it's 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 mostly heisty comedy fun. Yeah, for the yeah. Christmas season. Yeah. So yeah. That <laughs> It's a good cast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Nate. Well, I was just like Dan. For some reason, my mind just totally went blank when I heard well, the title. Well, mine did too. I it was just, like, Robert, you're... Me, I was thinking, okay, <laughs> i got to come up with something. What? Something, something. Okay. So my idea is I'm going with Robert Urich as well, since he's my favorite. <laughs> of course. Um, I'm, Robert Urich and Kate Jackson are a newlywed couple. Oh, so good. And um, nice. basically their honeymoon is just terrible. Like they, they get married and their honeymoon is over the Christmas holidays and they're having a horrible Christmas, like, you know, their their room was, uh, the hotel was overbooked, so they end up staying at a seedy hotel, but it's a comedy. So what I'm thinking is they go through all these mad, like, madcap uh, situations, and they end up getting mugged and losing, you know, their money. And so uh, I think that in the end, they pawn uh, some jewelry, and they end up going to a casino, and they are going to try to win, like, uh, a big pile of money so they can afford to actually get back home since they've lost, you know, all their money. So that way they can afford plane tickets. So they go in, and I'm almost thinking Robert Urich plays the best poker hand of his life, and in the end, he wins on Three Kings. Nice. So the title is like the twist, because people will be thinking, why is this movie called The Three Kings? It doesn't make sense. And then the very last shot is The Three Kings oh, laid down God. on the card table. So mm-hmm. good. That's so good. I would see it. I would see, I would see both of those, just so you know. I wouldn't see mine, except for the fact that Robert York and Stephanie Powers are in it. <laughs> But, I'd go see it. Oh, oh, well, what? I'd stay home and I'd stay home and see it. I mean, because it's a TV movie. So. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to go anywhere to see it, so why not? But Robert York and Stephanie Powers, I don't think I've ever seen them matched up together. So, I mean, I'm in it to win it in that way. But the three kids are obnoxious. I don't really like movies about kids, but unless they're evil. Unless they're evil, right? Yeah, then I love it. But um, yeah, I I think I'm notoriously suck at this game. I think every time we play it, I'm like, um, Robert York did this. But anyway, uh, Joanna, what's the movie about? Um, it's a 1987 Aaron Spelling production movie. <laughs> yeah, start uh, aired on ABC. It stars Jane Kaczmarek. She plays wow. a she plays a psychiatrist at a mental hospital who is tracking down three escaped patients whose mental state is so fragile. Um, during a Christmas pageant, they come to believe that they are themselves the three magi. So when they escape, they follow the star through the Los Angeles night sky, and they're seeking the baby Jesus. The um, doctor, played by Jane Kaczmarek, she is trying to delay the media and the news camera people from um, reporting about the story because she's afraid that if she doesn't find the three lost mental patients quickly enough, there'll be a panic in the streets and the, her her three favorite patients will might be harmed or injured. Uh, but it it all night long they you know these three mental patients are on the loose seeking the baby Jesus and as they encounter people along their journey 
it turns out the public is supporting and encouraging this uh, wonderful journey of the three kings because they're seeking something meaningful in their life and it's actually inspiring to the public and the public is actually helping the three magi. They're not, you know, panicked or worried about the mental patients. It's actually, it's a light comedy, um, but it's a fantastic movie. Um, and the mental patients are uh, Jack Warden and Lou Diamond Phillips. Oh, and uh, the third one is an African-American actor. I'm sorry, I forget his name. I don't have it uh, right here in front of me. But it also has uh, Charles Nelson Riley in it as a mall um, clerk. And Vic Tabak nice. is a used car salesman. Oh, oh so good. I'm already in. The Tabak. The Tabak. Sounds, that sounds excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does sound fun. They came in search of a miracle. Give us a sign. Everyone thought they were crazy. It's the start. But they just wanted the world to believe. Do you know who we are? A different kind of Christmas carol. The Three Kings Thursday. It's interesting because, you know, Ernest Belling was producing TV movies all the way up into the 2000s. Like the he remade Satan's School for Girls in 2000. And that was kind of interesting. He always had kind of a love for the telefilm, even when it was sort of out of favor. This one sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're uh, careful, you can actually spot a very young Tori spelling uh, mm. in a scene at a falafel stand in the movie. Oh, fantastic. Cool. Well, I definitely want to see that. That actually sounds really good and fun. Fun. Okay. So. Uh, I'll try no... to go first on this one. Okay, I'm going to not let my mind seize up. There's no Bigfoot in that, though. So. It's okay. Yeah, I guess. Um, okay, so, Jenna, what's the next one? Matter of Principle. Oh. Okay. Um, uh, all right, here we go. So uh, we go back about 10 years or so. It's Ida Lupino and James Mason living in the house. They're an uh, older couple, long since retired. And James Mason uh, plays Santa every year, like in the week leading up to Christmas. And he's like a, 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 a centerpiece of the town. And for him, um, at one year when Ida Lupino says, uh, do you want to, uh, you sh maybe you shouldn't do it this year because he's getting really old. And he says, no, it's a matter of principle with me that I will do this until I die and maybe beyond. And so he goes out and he does it. And then we see him on his deathbed. And as he's about to pass, a strange gentleman, some sort of weird charlatan scientist shows up and says, I have a way to keep your husband alive for some time. Would you like to try this? And they both agree. And we see, maybe we see the operation, maybe we don't. But the scientist has a gorilla. And he puts James Mason's brain into the gorilla. And so now the gorilla plays Santa every year. And nobody, it's, it's the same guy. It's still James Mason. Maybe even talks. I don't know. But he's great. And everybody loves him. But then what happens is we cut to like five years before that. And we get the story of the gorilla. We're in a jungle. And we see David Jensen and Lindsay Wagner as these, these game hunters. And they're about to, I don't know, is, is gorilla game? I don't know. Um, they're, about to, <laughs> they're about to shoot the gorilla. And something happens happens and they don't kill the gorilla and somehow the scientist ends up with it i haven't fully figured that out yet and so they make it it's a matter of principle with them that they do not miss out on on the game they they 
always get what they're after. And so they have been tracking down this gorilla. And the scene that opens the movie is them finding the gorilla like the day before Christmas Eve. And there's some sort of craziness in the house. And maybe the gorilla escapes and goes a little primal. And, and so the hunters are after the gorilla and everyone else is trying to get the find the gorilla to put him in a Santa suit for the kids. And Ida Lupino's kind of thinking, I don't know, I might not do this next year. And it's all kind of craziness and it builds and builds to maybe a big climax with a maybe the gorilla climax climbs a tree with Lindsay Wagner or something like that in his arms. I don't know, but that's, that's a matter of principle. So. Yay. Yay. Excellent. Um, Nate, what's your idea? Oh, my idea centers around Ruth Gordon as the principal of this uh, very big school. And she's very like loving to, to everybody. She's one of the very nice and friendly principals. Um, and I'm thinking that the kids get snowed in somehow and it's like a big blizzard that was unexpected. So the parents can't get to them. So as a matter of principle, this principal starts <laughs> doling out gifts now, it's not much. It's just like a ruler for one person, whatever she can find in her office. But it's the thought that counts. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's a recipe. Like like oh, that may have been my worst one yet. I think but, it uh, reminds me of... I, I, we, okay, so I'm still editing the male stripper episode, which I'll talk about at the end. So people are maybe not going to get the reference till after they hear it. But it, very, it sounds very much like, please, mom, don't hit me in the face. <laughs> It's a message. It's a message movie. It's a message movie. <laughs> I I'm forgot still that I said that. I, I, I I'm like, still laughing. I like the idea of like the child coming in and 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 saying, "Is there something for me?" And she go, she looks around and goes, "Do you use staples?" Yes, staple remover. <laughs> and the one girl who wants a great gown, we can do a throwback to Gone with the Wind, and she rips the curtains and blinds <laughs> off of her window <laughs> and makes like a nice. gown for her. So inspiring. So yes. inspiring. And I, I love, love Ruth it. Gordon, so I had to bring her up. I think she, I think it's perfect. I mean, it sounds like a pretty good movie until the socks and the staples and pencils start coming out. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like here's a here's a letter sorter. <laughs> here's a here's a Manila envelope. Oh please, think of the, think of the things you can put perfect. in there and the, pl the places they'll go. Yes. <laughs> I've um, certainly seen Christmas uh, TV movies that are weaker than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, with Ruth Gordon at the helm, you're doing okay. Um, yeah. So Nate basically stole my principal idea, and I knew if I let him go next, it was going to happen. But I did. So I really quickly came up with a different idea. So what we have here is somebody named Mr. Principal, played by Robert Foxworth. Yeah. Because I love him. And he is working on an experiment to transport himself to different parts of the world through electrons, protons, everything that creates atom, meaning he's using matter to travel across the world. Ah. So, so, he, so it's a matter of principle. Get it? So what happens, is, what happens is Santa Claus can't travel this year because something happened to his leg or something, you know, like he has a flesh eating virus, let's say. And so while he's, well, he's recovering from that. Um, and it spread to the reindeer and the elves. Like everybody's really sick. It's a contagion. There's a contagion at the North pole. It's up to Robert Foxworth to get his matter together so he can travel around the world and deliver gifts to all the children. And I don't have anything past that except that I want his real life lady, Elizabeth Montgomery, to play his lady in this in some capacity. I want Mr. Principal to be single, 
but end up with Liz Montgomery at the end. So somehow she has to either travel with him or help him set up the travel stuff. Like she could be his geeky assistant that he never fully recognizes. She wears glasses. As a, as a beautiful woman yes. that desires him until the very end when she takes the bun out of her hair, removes the glasses, shakes her hair a little and says, Holy Mr. Moly. Principal, it's time to get inside the machine. But when she says inside the machine, she means her. <laughs> And he doesn't understand. So he gets onto the other machine and he travels around the world and everybody's happy and all the children get their gifts. So that's my story for Matter of Principle. Nice. <laughs> nice. Very sciencey. It is. I think people will learn a lot if they watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I already have. <laughs> Yay. Okay. That's the only one I've ever done that's halfway decent. Oh, no. No. Yeah, it is. But anyway, so what is this? What is the matter principle about? And please let it be about science. Um, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> matter of principle actually is a very high quality character drama from 1984. It was made for American Playhouse on PBS. And eventually later, uh, years later, it also aired on the Disney Channel. But it stars Alan Arkin as, um, yeah, as a man named Flag Purdy. He's a man of strong principles, capable of arguing and convincing his family to believe that he doesn't really need a job. They don't really need, the kids don't need an education. And more importantly, um, they don't need to celebrate Christmas. Mm. For some reason, he's against it. When his daughter brings home a Christmas tree, he sticks to his principles and the all hell breaks loose. It's actually a very fantastic um, drama and I really recommend it. Again, it stars Alan Arkin, and he plays the main character, but his wife is played by actress um, Barbara Dana, who is Alan Arkin's real-life wife. Oh. And the oldest daughter is played by Virginia Madsen. Oh, wow. A Matter of Principle was a very special project for me. It was one of those rare occasions when all of the pieces fit together perfectly, and everybody knew it while it was happening. It was a joy to make... And I believe very strongly that that joy has been transmitted to the screen. All of us connected with the film are very proud of it. It was also special for me because I had the opportunity to star with my wife, Barbara Dana, and our son, Tony. Barbara and I play an impoverished couple struggling to raise 11 children in rural Virginia. I'm going to tan your hide. My character's name is Flag Purdy, and he's one of the most ornery characters I've ever played, and I've played a lot of ornery characters. Hey, Fred, watch a tree. Why don't you leave them in the woods where they belong? And I saw the postman coming down the path. What's the cap in West Virginia? I don't recognize West Virginia. What the book says? I don't care what the book says. There's only one Virginia, and Richmond is its capital. He thinks there's only one thing wrong with the world, the fact that he's not running it. When are you coming back to work, Flag? When they get them a foreman that don't cut corners. So it's no surprise at all when we discover that Flag is a kind of lopsided view of Christmas. Are you going to take that tree out of here or do I have to throw it out behind him? As a show of authority and to demonstrate his principles, Flag smashes the first Christmas tree his children ever had. A Matter of Principle is partly a Christmas story, but it's also a story of a woman's newfound independence. But you best remember, I've been my own woman for a day now. And I like the feel of it just fine. And a man's struggle with his own nature, his stubborn adherence to principle. I don't care. Principle was at stake here. 
At Christmas time, miracles can happen, even to a long-time grouch like Flag Purdy. Well, let's not give away the whole thing. Barbara and I believe very strongly that this is a timely story no matter what the season. And we're confident that you'll enjoy this powerful human drama and perhaps, like us, you'll end up by making it part of your own celebration of Christmas. That sounds really good, actually. Yeah. Well, if Alan Arkin's in it, I'll watch it. I mean, mm-hmm. I will, just because I think he's so amazing. This, uh, I like my story the best out of these. I, I normally Me don't, too. but I, I really like the idea of like time travel and um, Christmas. And I'm sure that's happened and I'm not being original. But um, I really like the part about Elizabeth Montgomery saying, get in my machine. <laughs> <laughs> and there being a misunderstanding. That's mm-hmm. all. Okay. <laughs> so that was really fun. You always bring up these really interesting movies um, yeah. that I should know. But I guess there's just so many Christmas movies. So real quick, Joanna, are you trying to still cover like all the Christmas movies as they air? Is that possible? Like, yeah. like the new ones? Like I record them because there, there's far too much uh, Christmas entertainment um, you know, between November and December every year, there's far too much of it to watch it and to write about it thoughtfully. So I record everything. And actually, it's a full time job just finding and locating all the hundreds of programs um, yes. you know, in all the schedules and keep track of everything. So I record it and then I spend uh, January through May watching it and writing about it and updating my database of everything Christmas Wow. Yeah, it's it's intense. Like when I first met you, I feel like there was a lot of stuff being produced, but it seems to just keep growing and growing every year, like in yes. ways I can't even like follow. Yes, it. it's, what it's an industry. Yeah, it continues to get larger and larger every year. And there are between 120 and 150 Christmas programs made every year. And that number, um, you know, I, I've been saying that for the last three years, and I may need to recalculate and, and go up a little bit. Maybe there's between 130 and 160 or maybe even a little bit larger um, programs made uh, each year. Wow, that's amazing. And why do you think it, it keeps growing like that? Do you think it's just the industry thinks that there's a desire for it? Or do you think people more and more are returning to these Christmas specials? Oh, no, it's it's audience appetite for it. It's a moneymaker. Um, each just talking about Hallmark alone, Hallmark keeps making more and more movies each year. And uh, every holiday season, they break their previous uh, record for ratings and for, um, you know, number of viewers. And this year is already in 2017. This is already their biggest year yet uh, wow. for ratings, as well as for the number of Christmas movies they made. Yeah. Now, have you finally gotten around to Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas? I keep asking people about this movie. <laughs> I might have, and I might have blocked uh, most of it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to watch it one day. I did meet some people who'd seen it, and um, they thought it was pretty horrid. But the trailer, if anybody out there is curious about Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas, where he puts Christ back into Christmas, um, just watch the trailer. I don't know that you need to see more than that. <laughs> but it looks like a train wreck, and I'm really curious about it. It's like the one thing I really want to see that's like not horror related Christmas. You know what I mean? But every year I find an excuse not to watch it. it oh, it's yeah. horror related. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's probably horrible. But uh, um, one day, maybe we'll do that next year, guys. Except I don't think it ran on TV. And I wouldn't do that to you, by the way. Um, okay. So, uh, Joanna, why don't you tell us where we can find you and where the best place to pick up your book is? 
Um, you can find my book. Uh, you can get author signed copies through the publisher at 1701press.com. And um, you can find me on Facebook or on Instagram, even on Twitter. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm Tis the Season TV. And on Facebook, I'm on Christmas TV History. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for coming thank and doing you, this. Yeah. If if we had less technical difficulties, um, which most people hopefully won't know when they listen to this, we would have done another Christmas title. It's always so fun. You picked like the best titles. Yeah. That Three Kings one, I think, threw us all for a loop. And uh, <laughs> I think Nate and, Dan, Nate and Dan did a serviceable job with it. Um, that was really fun. Um, and we hope to see you next year, of course. And any other time you want to come on, if you would just want to talk something non-Christmas, we're always here uh, for you. Nate, what do you have going on? I know you guys did a Christmas episode, right? Where the Hysteria Continues? Yeah, we did. Don't open till Christmas. Oh. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Is it online yet? I can't. I don't know. I don't think it's uh, been released yet. Okay. No, it'll be released. I think a little later this month. Perfect. That's such a weird, wonderful film. Yeah. I really like yeah. it. I love Carolyn Monroe's little disco number. Yes. I do too. I do too. <laughs> and it's got yeah. that girl from Slaughter High in it. That's sort of like the final girl. That's really good. Oh, um. Yeah. And uh, Dan, what's going on with you? Uh, well, my my book is still out and available, 80s Action Movies on the Cheap. Uh, eventually, Super Train, my podcast, uh, I'm taking January off, so the last episode of this year will go out around the 22nd. Green Hornet, Ellery Queen Mysteries, and the last episode of The Immortal. I finished A Minute to Dismember, my minute-by-minute minute podcast covering Night to Dismember. And I've started a new one, which I haven't really mentioned, but I put the first six episodes up. It's One Minute with Blood Lake and Iced, and I've been having um, a good time doing it, so... So how are you are you alternating them? Are you just doing two uh, one minutes? Uh, well, what I'm doing is, yeah, e each episode, I start with Blood Lake, and then I talk about Ice, and I try to um, uh, make connections with the way they're structured and characters and things like that if I can. It doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. Surprise. <laughs> well, so, but that's I'm what experimenting's for. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fun. Um, awesome. Okay, so I'll just briefly go over. We already mentioned Yuletide Terror, which you can find Joanna and I in, and which is available through Spectacular Optical. Um, the copies are just going out now, so um, it should be available to everybody pretty soon. I guess the big news would be that my book, Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, made Barnes & Noble's Best of Horror oh, yes. for 2017. Um, yeah, that was really unexpected and exciting because I came from a very small publisher from Head Press, and I have gotten lots of nice feedback about my book, but not to the extent that I thought that Barnes & Noble was even aware I existed. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So. That was really that was a really wonderful surprise, and there's a link to it on my Twitter. Uh, my Twitter's I think made for TV mayhem. That's sad that I can't even remember what my Twitter is, but um, but I have a, like a pinned tweet about that if anybody wants to look at the Barnes and Noble article. Also, going back to Yuletide Terror, I did an interview recently at the Farsighted blog. They're doing a series of Farsight. Uh, I'm sorry, Fireside chats where they're talking to different contributors. Um, I think Paul Krupp from Can Exploitation is on there, and maybe Derek Johnson. Um, so check those out. Uh, I've I've got a pretty exciting year coming up. Um, we've got a couple things planned, a couple things I can't talk about. They're actually not TV movie related, but they're going to be really fun. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to tell you about one of them at our next recording or, or the recording after that. And I guess the big thing that's happening for me in 2018 is that I'm going to be doing some programming at the Alamo. I'm going to be doing the made for TV mystery movie, which means we're going to be showing um, quarterly one TV movie every quarter that's my choice and that we won't reveal until people come and see it. Um, the first one is scheduled for January 30th. The tickets have gone on sale. It's going to be at the South Lamar Alamo. We've got a really good first film picked out. 
the uh, Alamo and AGFA, which is the American Genre Film Archive, have access to a lot of prints. And there's many different ways that we can screen these films. So it's going to be a really good chance for you to see a TV movie in the way that they aren't necessarily intended to be seen, but a really great way to watch them. I know Joe, uh, who is the programmer there for Terror Tuesday, has already shown Gargoyles, which was amazing. If you're in Austin, I would really love it if you came to that and said hello to me. And also, I'm going to be recording a podcast uh, with Gore Blimey for the holidays as well. Uh, Gore Blimey runs the Trilogy of Terror podcast, and you've probably heard some of his feedback here on the show. And you may have already listened to his wonderful podcast, which, again, is called Trilogy of Terror. We're actually going to be doing several movies. Well, they're not movies. They're like specials made for television. There's seven of them, I think. It's Ghost Stories for Christmas, which is the British oh, yeah. um, sort of t- – they took a, a bunch of Mr. James stories and then adapted them into like they're not really tv movies because they're shorter than tv movies but like specials and um they're scary and they're wonderful i've watched three of them so far but we're going to be recording that and that episode will probably come out around the same time this episode comes out so if you're listening to this um please check out trilogy of terror gorblime is amazing check out every episode he's a lot of fun um and i'm super excited to do that our next episode is going to be amazing, but it comes with a caveat, and I'll tell you what that is when I get to the second title. So because it's January, and because I also love the snow, same as um, Hal Linden's character in whichever movie that was that we were talking about, <laughs> um, I love the snow. So we're going to, and I don't get snow in Texas, although it did snow here last week, so I got a little snow. Um, we're going to watch Snow Beast, oh, um, nice. yeah, which is like the best, and something called Ski Lift to Death, which wow. is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Under its alternate title, Snowblind. So my caveat to you, and I'll post a link to uh, watch it on Amazon Prime. My caveat is that I've read the reviews of the transfer, and it's shit. And I watched a part of it, and it's shit. So it's going to be really difficult to sit down and watch, and I'm sorry ahead of time to Dan and Nate by making them do this, but I've been dying to see Ski Lift to Death, dying to see it. So I'm going to give it a shot. And uh, I hope you guys can make it through the whole thing, but it is a really bad transfer with really shitty sound, and they did a super poor quality of it. But you know what? It's a chance to see a movie called Ski Lift to Death. That's how I'm looking at it, Um, and I I hope you will too. And that's a good movie for everybody to, if people want to leave feedback, it's a really easy movie to access. Also, Snow Beast is really easy to find online, and it's also been available on like cheap fidget packs, and it's on DVD. So those are two movies that people, if they really want to, send feedback and watch along with us. That's These are two great movies to start with. Um, so you can contact us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. You can also uh, contact us through email at uh, TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. And then we also have a website, and I forgot to write down the website URL, but it's something to the effect of uh, Made for TV Mayhem or is it tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com? I think might be it. If not, you can just find us online, and we have all kinds of links to the website. Um, but there's comment sections on there, too, if you want to leave comments there. And I think that's everything. So we almost got through this unscathed. <laughs> not quite, but we made it. Um, I want to wish everybody happy holidays, especially my co-hosts and my guests. This was really great of you guys. Um, I know everybody's busy around the holidays, so thank you for making time for this. And especially to our listeners as well, who take time to listen to us all year. And we've gotten a lot of really nice feedback from people. 
Um, and I really, really appreciate uh, just even like a tweet or two, you know, um, just saying something about you enjoy the show or you've listened to it. And if you have any suggestions, um, let us know. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. So don't be a stranger and we'll see you in 2018. And you might get the bonus mail stripper episode before the end of the year if I can manage it. So stay tuned and good night. Good night, everybody. Happy holidays. Good night. Want to learn more about horror directors with a lighthearted look at three of their movies? Meet fearless podcaster Gore Blimey. I've been unsettled by bats in the past and startled by parrots, and I've even been known to jump at the odd cockatoo. Discover horror films that are classics and others, too. There's a topless aerobics massacre, an exploding rock singer, cannibals, nude martial arts, a deep fright process. But it's not all silliness. You'll get proper movie breakdowns, opinion, and background information, too. Yep, in the 80s and 90s, Jeff Stryker was huge in gay porn. In every sense. So if you're a horror film fan, come and check out the Trilogy of Terror podcast at strangeanddeadly.com or find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on your podcatcher. One of those people that has a certain charisma and a certain style, and I'm just hoping one day he'll rub off on me. The Trilogy of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies.